As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. As always, I know I say this a lot, but when I say I'm super excited to have our guest on today, his work is some his work has illuminated my thinking and has helped me formulate my own thoughts around several issues thinking about race and capitalism. So please welcome for the first time and surely not the last time to The Malcolm Effect, Aaron Kondani. How's it going? I'm good, man. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Honestly, I had the fortunate experience to catch up with Aaron at Cornell quite recently, and this is just a, a continuing of that conversation. So my first first question is, considering organizing for Palestine in this moment, what is your assessment of where we are in the USA and also the UK? What do you think some of the things we should be proud about, I guess, in this moment or or what kind of what progress do you think we've made in your time seeing organizing for Palestine and where do you think we can still go hard on yeah I mean I think you know I think it's a remarkable moment right like I think I don't think we've ever seen this kind of thing in the United States of this number of people getting mobilized around around Palestine and you know I was in Washington DC a few weeks ago I never thought I'd see the day to be honest of like that many Palestinian flags flying down you know Pennsylvania Avenue it was it was remarkable and it's it's clearly that you know that lots of people who it's not just the the kind of hardcore of those of us who've, who've kind of been around for a while kind of been involved in trying to think about this stuff for a while in the United States it's it was just you know like a lot of the phrases ordinary people they're not ordinary people but like folks who hadn't been you know necessarily active on this stuff before not necessarily people active in anything politically any mm-hmm. you know before just saying like actually this is just wrong like it's not yeah. complicated it's simple it's like i i just know that this has to be wrong and that because my government is not opposed to it and is in fact funding it and supporting it and supplying the weapons it falls to me as an individual to have that moral responsibility just to just to take to the streets and 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 show that that this is this is you know something that we have to stop immediately and a good number of those people are jews who who are just saying like this isn't what it means to be a Jew, right? This is yep. like to me being a Jew doesn't means means that you don't do this stuff. And so this is a you know so it's a special moment. We're seeing all kinds of new organizing, and and what's what's happening is that that the Zionists in the United States are basically they understand that they've kind of lost the argument at this point, right? And especially amongst young people, you know, where the opinion polling is saying that the majority of young people in the United States want a ceasefire, they don't support you know, Israel doing what it's doing. And, and so they've lost the argument. And so they're turning to censorship, they're, they're using wealth and power to try and impose their views now, rather than persuasion, all the old, all the old kind of propaganda that they used to have, Israel as this kind of plucky startup nation of historical victims of anti-Semitism and all these kind of things. I don't think I don't think they're working anymore. And I think they know they're not working. 
and so they're just saying, well, we have some people who've got money who can who can basically withdraw their donations to universities if if we cut if you know intimidating universities into 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 basically becoming more repressive towards yeah uh, people uh, mobilizing for Palestine right and 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 it, you know it's it's interesting to me like I think I don't I don't think that we've seen you know thinking about yesterday what happened in Congress right where yeah. We had these presidents of University of Pennsylvania, MIT and Harvard kind of hauled before Congress and accused of allowing anti-Semitism to flourish on on their campuses. And the examples of anti-Semitism were people chanting, chanting slogans with the word intifada in it. And so then that became, you know, the question was, well, if you allow that, then you're supporting calls for the genocide of Jews. Which, which is obviously preposterous. Yeah. It's the kind of, it's the kind of, there's something that happens when you're a colonizer to your, to your sense of reality, right? Like when you're a colonizer, you start to see, you start to see threats everywhere, right? And the slightest, yeah. the slightest disagreement, the slightest challenge, even in the, in the form of speech is interpreted as inherently violent, right? And inherently aimed at wiping you out, right? Yeah. It's not, a it's it's one of the kind of pathologies that is familiar to us if we've studied the history of colonialism right we, read, we've seen if it read our fanon if we've read our fanon if we've read our fanon if we've you know if we've looked at any of these situations right we know what this is right and absolutely um, and that's what that's what was playing out yesterday in congress now no one in their right minds looks to the united states for moral leadership on any of yeah. these things but to have you know while the united states is supplying weapons for a genocide for that to be the debate in congress right is yeah. is i mean it's a it's a an outrage that even by us standards is remarkable and and it's transparent you know when when you when you create this situation where the people running the universities you know you they have been absolutely pathetic in simply prostrating themselves before these demands from zionist funders abandoning any pretense of, of of you know kind of principles of freedom of expression and academic freedom which just a few months ago they were they were saying were were the most important things yep. for, for universities at Cornell the president was this was meant to be the year when when Cornell celebrated freedom <laughs> of expression right and and that was announced that was announced in the wake of of the, you know the apologizing when Ann Coulter was was heckled and and decided to end her talk last year. Anne Coulter, who is an anti-Semite, you know, like it's not. It's, it's, so, so you yep. can allow you can allow an anti-Semite, in fact, to speak on at Cornell in the name of freedom of expression, but you can't say Intifada and you can't say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which are not anti-Semitic slogans, but slogans that demand freedom for for the Palestinian people. Thank you so much for that. I know you wrote a brilliant piece in which I actually quoted that line in an interview where you said, you know, the question should be, where do you think from the river to the sea that Palestinians shouldn't be free? But right. as we find that we're in this discursive battle at the moment of what can we say? What can't we say? Should we allow some slogans? Should we not say certain things? When people are saying these slogans are interpreted as genocide of the Jews, it does less, it, it becomes a distraction. I'm of the opinion that racism is always going to be a distraction. They're always going to find things to distract us with from talking about the actual issues. But I think these rallying calls are what they say. And Intifada, 
symbolizes a resistance against colonialism, colonial domination from the river to the sea is calling for Palestinian liberation and has nothing to do with genocide of the Jews. So like speaking to, I guess, some organizers, what would you say about these slogans? I mean, I think it's essential that we don't allow ourselves to be moved away from from the terrain on which we want to articulate our struggle and and yeah. kind of concede ground. I mean, you know, like there's a, you know, th- there's a there's a kind of basic moral imperative of kind of respect for your for your fellow human beings, of respect for other people that you share a space with, to listen to their to what to what they're saying and so on. That to me doesn't extend to a kind of self-censorship that panders to what is essentially a kind of a, a psychological fragility that is a symptom of being a colonizer, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think, I don't think you pander to that. I think you, because it doesn't actually help them in the end either yeah. to pander to it, right? Like, I think if you, if, if you recognize that that's what we're dealing with, then the, our job, our job in relation to people who believe that these slogans are anti-Semitic is, is to, is to show them how in the end like we are that these are slogans for freedom and in the end their freedom is going to be bound up with with the the, the freedom of the Palestinians right and this is you know this is so it, it's not that we ignore the, these arguments and and simply avoid engaging them but we have to engage mm-hmm. them on our terms right and with a vision of 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 how in the end we have to we have to liberate ourselves from colonialism and also therefore the colonizer gets liberated as well, right? I mean, I think that's Absolutely. the principle here, right? And and the the you know, I, and I you know, and and obviously sometimes you know that that assumes a certain good faith on their part as well, right? But yeah. but a lot of the time there is not there is not good faith, and they know exactly what they're doing in going after you know. I, I mean, I think we have to distinguish between the people who are kind of deeply involved in Zionist organizing who know exactly what they're doing and distinguish them from you know kind of people who who are outside of that circle and who who are just kind of responding more spontaneously to what what they think these things mean because of what they've read somewhere or other about it so when it you know when it comes to we have to we have to you know there are so many lies that we have to fight our way through Mm -hmm. we can't be doing that in a way where we kind of water down our own position. If you think that, Absolutely. if you think that, you know, so another, the, the thing that we have to, we have to say is if you believe that Israel has the right to defend itself, then you have to also believe that Palestine has the right to defend itself, right? Like that seems to me like a crucial point that, that we need to be making. Um, if, if you think that, you know, especially because the argument that's being used now is that, we, you know, that the, these slogans somehow represent a an opposition to the two state solution, right? That if you say from the river to the sea, you don't believe in a two state solution, you you propose a one state solution. And for for a lot of people who who use that slogan, that's a that that is their position, and yep. and that's an honourable position in my opinion. But yeah, but if you if you want to, if your objection to the slogan is that you think that you know you want to defend a two state solution then a two-state solution requires you to recognize Palestine's right of self-defense as much as Israel's right of self-defense. And, there, and you know, so if you're not talking about Palestine's rights to self-defense, then you're not serious about a two-state solution. And, and you know, this is, this is what we need to call out the, the, you know, the people who are attacking us on because it's just a blatant, it's a blatant hypocrisy and it's a blatant contradiction in their position. 
Absolutely. And I just feel like I'm sometimes living in an episode of Black Mirror or some mm-hmm. like a dystopian order. Because if you look at what happens at Cornell, when we had there was some threats of anti-Semitism and there was anti-Semitism threats and there was violence, the violence threats made against Jewish students. And I must, they were also made against Muslim students that the administration ignored. Mm-hmm. But we had the FBI come onto campus immediately and deal with it. We had this, the university come out with a statement. We have a governor of the governor of the state come to campus to reassure Jewish students. We had the non-factor Kamala Harris's husband come onto campus to reassure with mm-hmm. Secret Service to reassure Jewish students. So I'm a bit confused. And then we hear this. So there's an actual genocide taking place. Mm-hmm. And what we're arguing about, what we're having to talk about is to quell the fears or the irrational fears mm-hmm. of some students on campus. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I just feel like I'm, I personally am not going to buy into that anymore. And I feel like it's a waste of time. I think, you know, like, I think, you know, like it's, it, if we're in a, if we're in a sort of situation where, you know, it's a zero sum game of attention, right? Like if that's the situation, then then you're absolutely right. You know, like the the amount of attention that the you know the incident that did happen on Cornell of one student going on a message board and saying stuff that was anti-Semitic, and then the reaction to that is out of all proportion compare if you compare it with the reaction to to what's actually happening outside of that and yep. it, and how that's affecting Muslim students and other students in Cornell, right? So absolutely. I, th- I think we also need to get to the point where we don't necessarily have to think of this as a zero-sum game of attention, right? Like, I, like if we're forced to talk about the issue of anti-Semitism, I think we have a better argument about how we oppose anti-Semitism than the Zionists do, actually, yep, right? exactly. Because actually, if you want to talk about anti-Semitism at, at Cornell, you, you might want to f- talk about Anne Coulter, before you talk about anyone else being invited to speak at, at Cornell, you might want to you might want to say the best protection against this guy this guy who was going online who, who's reading the news about what's happening in Gaza and post something anti-Semitic in response. The best protection for that kind of response to what's happening in Gaza is a very strong pro-Palestinian movement on campus because if he wasn't just sitting in his bedroom on his own posting something online if he was actually on the streets and involved in actual organizations who are who are yeah. pro-palestinian that kind of anti-semitic thinking would have been would have been challenged pretty quickly and he would have been receiving some political education to get him to understand that it's not actually about the fact that the people doing this are jews but it's about zionism and the how Zionism fits into this bigger picture of of the US imperialism, right? And so, you know, like, actually, we are better at dealing with anti-Semitism than they are, right? Absolutely. And because because we don't don't play games with this shit, you know? Like, they play games with anti-Semitism. One minute, minute Israel is the Jewish state, and any criticism of Israel is a criticism of Jews. So they're equating Israel with Judaism, right? Exactly. But, you know, but then if people come and say, all right, well, then, Add, add anger at Israel also means anger at Jews, then then that becomes anti-Semitic, right? So they're muddying the water, right? Yeah. We're more, much more principled in how we understand anti-Semitism on our side on this debate, exactly. right? So I don't I don't feel the need to say, I don't want to, you know, I'm, my take on this is, yeah, there is a there is a, a battle for attention and whose narrative is, is getting more attention in this. But if we're in the situation where we're talking about anti-Semitism, we're going we're gonna to actually have better things to say and, and more things that capture the real reality of what anti-Semitism looks like. We're going to have more things to say on our side of this argument 
the anti-Zionist side of the argument. And, exactly. you know, and this is what Jewish anti, anti-Zionists uh, have been saying themselves. So absolutely. I don't want, I don't even, I don't even feel like we need to concede that ground to them. No, I absolutely agree with you. And obviously we're in this moment where we see a continued confounding of Jewish identity and the state of Israel as a project, as a settler colonial project. And we're seeing this is a deliberate attempt by the Zionists. But I have to ask you, given what con- what the Congress has passed in the House anyway, and one of the one provisions is that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, what does this look like going forward? I know it hasn't passed completely yet. It's yet to go to the Senate. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen next? But should we be worried at this point? Well, I mean, you know, I think, I think... We're in a we're in a battle, right? We're in a battle. On the one on the one side, we've got this very large mobilization, more and more people learning about the history of the Palestinian struggle, learning about the issues, getting involved. And on the other side, you know, Congress, university administrations, you know, kind of wealthy donors to to um, universities and so on, trying to use their power to stop that from happening, right? And this is one of you know this this kind of legislation is is part of that. I mean, I think the most terrifying piece of this that I've seen is the calls that have come from Anti-Defamation League, Brandeis University, and and are starting to find their ways entering into some legislatures like possibly Florida and so on, where where they're they're not just accusing, you know, like Students for Justice for Palestine and groups like this of anti-Semitism, but they're saying that they are involved in the material support for Hamas, right? So then you're moving to not just like a kind of censorship issue, but a crim, you know, full-on criminalization issue. Because, you know, I mean, there's people who've been in federal prisons for t- 20 years or so right now, like the Holy Land Five, you know, sitting in federal prison right now on exactly those charges of material support for for terrorism, right? So they're using, yeah, you know, they're trying to mobilize the idea of counterterrorism here as another weapon in their arsenal, and and all the legislation you know, that was deployed so, you know, so egregiously in the in the war on terror. And so that's something that we're going to have to take on if they move in that direction. We've certainly got our hands full in terms of, you know, challenging all these attempts to suppress us. We also need to think about, you know, at some point in the next few months, this is not necessarily going to be like, you know, the kind of front page news story anymore, right? Like yeah. at some at some point, they'll uh, and you know it's ter- it's obviously a terrifying kind of thought process to to try and think through where this is going in Gaza and 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 what the what the next year is going to look like. But but it's possible at least that at some point in the coming months, you know, this falls off as as, as kind of headline news. It's in the a bit more in the background, and of course the the violence and the uh, occupation and all of and all the kind of violations of human dignity that that involves will will be continuing and our question is going to be how do we you know this momentum that we've built up over the last couple of months how do we channel that into something that can be sustained going forward out of the immediate crisis what kind of organizations can we build to to hold ourselves together in this uh, in, and and kind of channel that energy going forward right and and that, i think mm-hmm. that's going to be our challenge because if we can do that then we have the resilience to really build something that, you know, that will give us the strength we need to prevent them from using these repressive measures against us. Because that's, you know, that's when it's going to, like right now, they can't, it's not easy for them to censor us, right? Like right now we're strong enough that, that, 
you know, when they tried to do it in Columbia University and they tried to suspend the activities of Students yeah. for Justice for Palestine, a few days later, 20 other student organizations in Columbia University said, well, we're with them too. If you want to suspend them, you've got to suspend all of us, right? Yeah. Can't do it. They, you know, so so basically, you know, that's that's a signet, you know, that's a sign of our of our strength right now. We're not gonna necessarily be in that position in a few months' time. And that's when they're gonna start picking us off, right? So we need to be, I think we need to, it's it's that moment that we need to be re- ready for with strong organization, you know? And, and so I think that's just something to think about going forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. In thinking about campus repression specifically, we've noticed that campuses are somewhat a key battleground when it comes to organizing for Palestine. What is the role of, what is the role of campuses in terms of organizing for Palestine and why does it have this role in your understanding? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I don't, I'm not sure what I think about that, to be honest with you. I, I, okay. think, I think that part of the answer is just that, you know, there's been this, this really kind of powerful work that's been done by Students for Justice for Palestine, right, over the last decade or so that has built up this, this kind of infrastructure that, that has been so crucial over the last few months. And, and partly I think what's going on as well is that there's, you know, like in 2020, in that summer of 2020, we had, we had 15 million people on the streets after the murder of George Floyd in the Black Lives Matter protests. And my sense of that was, you know, average age would have been like 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think my guess is, is that, I mean, that, that on the, if you didn't look closely, it seemed like that kind of faded out after a year or two. Yeah. And, but, but if you're 17 or 18 years old and you kind of join in something like that, it doesn't just disappear from your, from your kind of personality and from your, exactly. from who you are. It's, it can, it's there in the background and it will pop back in in new circumstances you know that's what i felt at the time and then i think what's happened this year is is that it's precisely those people who were who were involved in 2020 who are now like oh okay this is this is something else right that we need to be taking a stand on and and if they were 17 in 2020 they're 20 years old now they're undergraduate students at colleges and and it you know they've broadened perhaps their their horizon of from from thinking about racist violence by by police officers and prisons and so on in the United States to thinking about Palestine, which means whether they use the term or not, they're thinking about US imperialism, right? And yep. so so I think that's part of the story here, you know, a kind of radicalization, which in a in a funny way tracks the same process that that the movement went through in the 1960s where people started off thinking about, you know, kind of civil rights in the South and so on. But then within a few years understood that in fact, they had to deal with this much bigger system of this kind of U.S. global empire, yep. right? So, I think I think that something similar, like some, some at least the trajectory, the direction of travel looks similar to me. the The other thing is that is that like other conservative movements in the United States, Zionism has this view of how to defend itself where universities are central, right? Like, so just like with with the kind of conservative attack on critical race theory. Right, where they think that so from their point of view, they think that they think in elitist ways, actually, right? They think that what matters is how is the next generation of the ruling class in the United States being educated, right? Yeah. So what matters is what's happening in Harvard and what's happening perhaps in Cornell and yeah. UPenn and MIT and Yale and so on, right? And and that is for them, that is the crucial place to intervene politically. 
And and if those if those students are being taught critical race theory, if those students are being taught about decolonizing, and if they're being taught about Palestine, then then they're losing they're losing the next generation of the ruling class, right? And so they yeah. they intervene there, right? Now and and they do that in, informed by this idea that you know they've got these ideas of you know the theory of cultural Marxism, right? The idea that you know. Old-fashioned Marxism was defeated, but then this kind of new cultural Marxist came, Marxism came along with with the Frankfurt School, and it was basically this conspiracy to to win through this kind of control of culture, and universities were central. And so, in other words, the left, the, the kind of left revolutionary project, no longer tried to have a revolution on the streets, but tried to kind of do this cultural revolution in people's minds by by controlling universities, right? So, and that's you know that's that the idea that the conservatives have and that Zionists have been influenced by as well, even though in many forms that theory is anti-Semitic as well. But, you know, here's, I mean, my take on this is, is like the left didn't choose to enter universities. Basically, the left, the left, the left in the United States would much rather have been powerful on the streets and in workplaces and so on, but wasn't and so the, u- the universities were the only place for it to to go right and all the all the sort of people who who consider themselves involved in kind of revolutionary movements you know 40s 50s 60s all by the 70s were all teaching at universities just because that's the only place left for them to go they didn't want to be there they'd much rather yeah. be on the streets right so it's a misreading of the history but in any case i think that's why they 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 focus so much attention on on what's happening on, on campuses. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they don't, and they don't really care that much about the kind of the colleges where working class kids in the United States go to get higher education. It's they, true. No, they only, a... <laughs> you know, they're not they're not hauling up their some you know some obscure kind of city university of New York college that that is educating you know kind of multiracial working class students in in uh, Queens or something like that. You know they they you know they're they're going after the big ones because they care about they they see it as as they look at it in elitist terms, right? They think that it's about yeah. the next the next generation of the ruling class. No, thank you so much for that. And I want to bring you back to the point. Let's say someone was radicalized during the uprisings during the in the aftermath of the execution of George Floyd. We often hear in that that Palestine is the litmus test now. And we often and we have we have the synergy between black organizing in the States and Palestinian organizing that goes back decades. Just to maybe unpack that further for our listeners, when we say Palestine the litmus test, how do you understand that? I mean, I think there there is something about this thing that has been true for a long time in in US liberal circles, right? Where it's it's progressive except for Palestine, right? The PEP phenomenon, right? Where where there was there was a a large number of people who who were in their kind of broad political values were progressive or liberal on on every issue but then when you when you found yourself talking to them about the issue of Palestine suddenly you find out that they're they're zionists and they they and they don't seem to see a contradiction right and so there's various historical reasons why that why that kind of formation has has emerged you know you'd want to go back to the kind of, I mean, I think again, like for so many other things, the kind of late sixties, early seventies, this is kind of key moment in in the emergence of that phenomenon. And so, in in a moment like this, where the question of Palestine becomes a kind of central political fault line at the moment, it does become a way to 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 see how serious people are about their commitment to human dignity, right, and human freedom. And even in, we don't even have to kind of put it in more 
in more radical terms than than that kind of language and you know just like it's you know a lot of this is 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 people on this stuff do not even meet the most basic standard of of kind of like a recognition of universal human dignity right where the life of a palestinian counts for as much as, as the life of an israeli like if you can't even meet that basic level of equality and liberalism then, then it does discredit any any broader claim that you have on on uh, around the rest of your politics to to being egalitarian and to being a liberal, right? And and so you want to you know to, so I think that's why this idea of the kind of litmus test has emerged, and and we, you do find that it it is clarifying, right? It's a clarifying moment because all kinds of people that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of as a Zionist so suddenly emerges as on the wrong side of this debate, right? And then also on the in, you know, in the other direction as well, people who you wouldn't necessarily expect come out as 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 making very kind of decent statements on this stuff in ways that, that can sometimes be surprising, right? So it's clarifying precisely because there is so often a disjunction in terms of what people think about in terms of Israel-Palestine and the rest of their politics, right? Absolutely. And I guess finally then, what does the Palestinian, in your reading, the Palestinian struggle represent? Well, I mean, I think I think that the, the answer to that is always going to be a little subjective. But I think that I would say that, you know, so, so I agree with, with those those people who've who've argued that, you know, Zionism is a settler colonial project. Um, and what's distinctive about it compared to other settler colonial projects is the particular late stage in the game at which that that project begins. You know, like in the 1940s, when the Nakba happens, is is when, you know, the other parts of Asia and Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America are, are freeing themselves from direct European colonialism. And it's exactly that moment that the Palestinians suffer their greatest catastrophe as victims of colonialism. And that gives that's what gives Zionism its particular characteristic. And, and it's why when in the late 60s, having been failed by the kind of systems of international diplomacy and advocacy that they'd relied on up until then, and having been failed by the, the, the neighboring Arab nation states um, to achieve their freedom. The Palestinians take up an armed struggle at that point. Uh, you know, and, uh, it becomes the most widely supported and, and best funded of all the kind of national liberation insurgencies around the world at that time, of which there were many. And it becomes that because I think for most of the people of the world who are looking at this, they see in what's happened to the Palestinians something that is a kind of reminder of of their own colonial past of the worst kind of excesses and the, the most terrible moments in their own in their own colonial past and therefore the fear is that if the palestinians can't prevail then what has happened to the palestinians is also that the future for the rest of us and so it has that it has that resonance that symbolism that what what is done to the palestinians today will be done to the rest of us tomorrow now in and and on the on the Israeli side, they also mobilize the same kind of equation, right? Where they say, look at how successfully we're able to contain this insurgency and maintain this occupation. And don't you want the same kinds of 
techniques and technologies and surveillance systems and walls that we have and that have proven so successful here, don't you want that for your insurgent populations as well? And they become, and I think now this is central to Israel's place in the world is it is the, the leading edge provider of technologies of repression, right? For any authoritarian regime around the world that wants to uh, do do something similar, right? So in that way, again, our freedom in the end depends on the freedom of the Palestinians. And and so I think that's why that's why you get this the, the Palestinian issue always means so much more than just about what, what is being done to the Palestinians. I remember a few years ago I gave a talk at a university in Canada and I, I wasn't really talking about Zionism, but I but I said something in passing about it. One of the people in the audience was you know disagreed with my what I had to say and and rolled out the standard kind of Zionist arguments against against it and you know and we went back and forth a little but then something very interesting happened someone else in the audience who was Colombian stood up and he was incensed and he launched a a, a really powerful tirade against the Zionist because he said I don't think that I can support what you're saying because I know what the Israelis did in Colombia. I don't even have to think about Palestine. I know what the Israelis did in Colombia. They trained our paramilitaries. You know, they they were responsible for the violence that was done to my people, right? And so the, the solidarity that he felt with the Palestinian cause is not about looking from a distance and saying, isn't it awful what they're doing to those people? It comes from precisely the role that Zionism has as, as a supplier of repression for, for all kinds of context around the world right it's a it's purely self-interested uh, and based on his own experience of his community that he's that he's an anti-zionist right and i think that's crucial now thanks for raising that because it reminds me of the talk you gave at cornell recently when in the q a people spoke about solidarity and you said that solidarity and this is i guess i'm putting this into my words how i understood what you were saying is that solidarity isn't sympathy so you're not like having this oh i feel bad for these people you know you're saying that i recognize that it is in my own interest to have these systems fall as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, in our case in the United States, we need to free ourselves from Zionism as much for our interests in the United States because they're training our cops to be, to be more violent. They're allowing universities to be, to be more and more repressive places. Zionism is central to the war on terror, which is, you know, which is responsible for so much violence in, in, in our country. So there's all these ways that, that we fight because we know what's happening in Palestine, but we also fight because Zionism means something here as well, right, in how it corrupts this country. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was a great talk, actually, a great discussion. I highly recommend checking out the writings of our guest, Aaron Kundani. You find them online. An amazing writer, and I think his work is well worth engaging with. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Thank you.